Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Formula for Success. I'm David Colfard and the sound you just heard was our rocking theme song, which is called The Anchor, or as uh, my co-host would say, The Anchor. And it was composed, ah. it was composed by the very man sitting opposite me, Eddie Jordan. Yes, actually, I enjoyed it. Um, we came up with a whole lot of concoctions and we gave them to you. Most of them you didn't like, but this one's happened to get the seal of approval. Right. Um, here we are. It's ahead of the Austrian yep. Grand Prix. I'm going to be at the Austrian Grand Prix. I'm actually going to be driving in... Now, don't laugh when I say this. I'm driving in the Legends Parade. Now, I know you call me a legend, but I'm going to be getting in... Uh, what am I getting in? I think what I'm age are in, you, David? I'm 52, thank you for when asking. When are you getting to the use of reason? I mean, you're just not sensible. I, well, I wouldn't expect to see you in it. Um, you're very right to believe that I yeah. won't even be there because <laughs> I'd probably need a vomit bag. You know those things they have in plans? Yes. Can you imagine? You and Prost and all the... Oh, my God. Mansell, is he going to be there? I don't think so. No, absolutely not. But um, talking of legends, we have a genuine legend on the show today. He is a five-time world champion consecutively on two wheels. And it's a friend of ours... It's Mr. Mick Doohan. One of the finest gentlemen that has ever walked this planet. And um, for somebody who has achieved such greatness, uh, he is so calm. Um, he's not affected by it in any shape or form. Um, in fact, he's almost shy, isn't he? He's a, he's a, he's a real proper guy. Absolutely. And uh, the a little naming story... Michael Schumacher was very close to Mick and would spend a lot of time with, with Mick and the family when they were down in Australia or when Mick was based over here in, in Monaco. And the reason why Mick Schumacher, the son of Michael and Corinna, is called Mick is not just some sort of... That is true. ...tipping the cap to, to Michael having an M. It is because of Mick Doohan. That One. was the respect between those two. McDoan has that kind of an effect on people. Once you meet him and you listen to him and you realize how humble he is and how contrite and how just as a magnificent person, he is nevertheless able to keep up with you with that red wine, David, I've noticed. And the times that I've been in the beef bar, you and he seem to know what you're doing around that sort of stuff. Well, as we've said, work hard, play hard. And as our uh, old buddy, the late great Colin McRae used to say, we're here for a good time, not a not long, long time. We're going to take a few listeners' questions here. And this first one is from Ruth Larkin. And it's more a statement than a question. But anyway, 
Here it goes. Loving the new podcast, guys. I got engaged on the Yaz rooftop while Eddie Jordan was playing the drums and I was standing beside the bar. Well, there's a surprise. I was standing beside the bar. That was me. You weren't flying, were you? Definitely not. I was was mind sweeping. I was was picking up drinks that were being left. You buying? Well, that would be. be. Right. Let's move on. Let's get Ruth's uh, remainder of her question. She's been married now for 10 years. And she still watches uh, with her husband Formula One together. So uh, they would like to thank us for getting them to say yes. Well, there's not really a question, but we're very happy for Ruth that uh, watching you play the drums like Animal from the Muppets Uh, um, has inspired them to stay together for 10 years. Well done. Congratulations. Right. uh, Just so we know and our listeners know, the Yaz is the, uh, the Yaz Marina. Uh, it's now a W hotel, I believe, yeah, right yeah, in the middle of the circuit. Yaz Island. Yaz Island. Yeah. And uh, for anyone who's looking for a, a Grand Prix to go to uh, outside of Europe, then definitely Abu Dhabi has, uh, they've created an amazing facility there. It's ama- It just shows you what you can do with a billion dollars. Well, I'm sure, yeah, give it to me. I know different things that I might do with it. But anyway. Yeah, but they built the whole island. They built the island. They built all the hotels, but the David, racetrack, everything. What Abu Dhabi has done, not just the race circuit, not just the hotels, but the infrastructure, the money that they've put. Go to the airport. For heaven's sake, it's just palatial. It's fantastic. So these people know that they know how to make money and they've got oil and they've got various other uh, income streams, but they do spend it in a very sensible way. So Ruth saying there that you, you know, and somehow you're an inspiration for them to, to you think? get married. Is that what she said? Well, look, I'm maybe, I'm maybe being a bit too kind to you uh, in saying that, but have you ever, have you played a part in anyone else getting married or divorced actually? I brought onto the grid in Monaco a certain girl called Jerry Halliwell, and I introduced Jerry Halliwell to Christian Horner. And um, they're very much an item. So there's one, and there's obviously several other people, which just because I haven't cleared it with them, I think I'll just keep it to myself because uh, I don't know what kind of status they're in at the moment. So another question we've got in here, and God, this is a real lineup of Irish names if I've ever seen it. Sean Maher, Ross Malone, Shane and Cork, because... There only is one Shane in Cork. He of course. Do, he doesn't need to give you second name. <laughs> Brian only... Shanahan, Padraig Macari, Magari, Magari. God, that's a good Irish name. They're all wanting to know the same thing, which is during your time in Formula One, did you ever get into talks about hosting, promoting an Irish Grand Prix? Or is it something that could happen in the future? Well, we've seen all sorts of Grand Prix emerge from all sorts of different places. And the same goes... Um, who'd ever thought 10 years ago, 20 years ago, that there would be three Grand Prix in the Middle East. So could it happen in Ireland? I would hope to think that it can do. Certainly, Ireland is emerging as probably, when if you start looking at the GDP and you talk about uh, politics and financials, um, Ireland is the dream country of Europe. Um, whether or not they're mad enough to spend their money on a Grand Prix or not, I doubt it. I think they should be better off keeping their money for other things. However, it's just a very small country, but, you know, it would be a classic. And I think if we did something like we did in London all of those years ago, where we got some of the teams to come and do a real live demonstration through the centre of the town. I like was in start... Dublin in January. I, I was driving the streets. And you closed the goddamn place down. And then you met this idiot who told you that I owed money in some bar. Or... Yeah, you, no, you were trying the... to undermine my cred. <laughs> anyway, so the answer is, uh, guys, 
Um, thanks for the support for that, by the way. Uh, I think Ireland could do it, but I think they first need to look at, instead of going headfirst into a Grand Prix, I would definitely suggest that they do something like they did in London, which would be a full-blown demonstration. Here's my suggestion. One man that could help coordinate that is someone that used to be involved in Formula One, has got shed loads of money and a load of free time. I'm thinking Eddie Jordan. No, I'm not thinking about him at all. <laughs> I, thought you were, I was hoping you were going to say Conor McGregor. Give something back, EJ. You've got to leave something I on the table Conor for McGregor the others. I may actually have amassed more than what you've tucked away. Uh, definitely. A hundred, definitely, definitely. Should we now introduce the man that's joined us in the studio, who's got a bit of Irish heritage. Must have, with a name like that. Absolutely. And a lot of serious world championships to his name. He is the one and only... McDoon. Ah! Sorry, Mick, we don't have a drum roll, but we yeah. just get EJ going, ah! How are you? Hey, I'm well. I'm well. How are you, gents? Well, can I answer first before he goes <laughs> off gonna, and around? I I'm not needed here because you're mates. You, do, you know each well, other. we're all mates. We're all you mates. go off to yeah, very absolutely. funny place. Now, you might, you might wonder why I have a, uh, well, it's a good meat and a half table. I sit at one end <laughs> and uh, Eddie's at the other because that's as close as I want to be to that man. And you're sitting between <laughs> well, us. I did just say so we had to wear masks when we come in here. <laughs> you're very lucky because he has made an admission we are not going to the pub after this show because normally 100%. we do, and I promise you, it's it's right time. Yeah. It really well, is. Well, different. there's a few very close to here. <laughs> yeah, there is. There is and indeed. You've been in there too. <laughs> right? Can we can we get on with asking? Come on, asking Mick a few questions. Of course, I'm all ears. Right. So, Mick, extraordinary career, absolutely, and one of the most insane sports that you could choose in terms of having an engine. You know, engine should be strapped with four wheels, not with two. Uh, and you, you, you competed during what was, you know, no, no traction control, no aero devices. It was pretty raw being on it was 500 championship. It was called at that time rather than MotoGP, but ultimately the premier form of motorbike racing. And you decided you're a young lad in Australia. I know I'd like to get my leg over and having explained that to your family, uh, sorry, the next you thing you know, that? they've bought you a motorbike. You must have been excited and disappointed all at the same time. <laughs> well, I was very young at that time when, when I got a bike, uh, I think I was around about six or seven years old. And then, then they figured they should put me in a racetrack rather than being caught by the police on the street <laughs> at seven years old. So, um, did that happen? <clears throat> that happened. Yeah. <laughs> did you get confused as to what was private property and what was public? No. <laughs> I just thought it was normal. Yeah, well, but, uh, Australia was a very open place back then. Very much so. And um, and and bikes were just, everyone had a farm back then, essentially, you know, on the outskirts of town. So there was a lot of lot of bikes used for ag purposes and, and whatever else. And there was a lot of trails to go dirt bike riding. So everyone seemed to have a dirt bike when you were growing up. And, and the weather was sort of um, played the part for us all. And uh, so, right, how do you go from doing a bit of dirt biking, going on track, to find in your way, you, you lived in Monaco for many years when you were in your, your, your prime career. Just sort of you know, take us on that journey because Australia is a long way away. It is a very long way away. Thankfully, the Irish sent us there many, many years ago for stealing something. I'm not sure what it was. But <laughs> How lucky were you? <laughs> exactly. I think they messed up there. They just put us on the wrong island. But look, you know, it all happened pretty quickly. Um, I had, a, had a, a bike that I'd financed on um, a company in Australia called Custom Credit. I don't know whether it appeared here. 
but um, or in Europe, but uh, it was like 22% interest back in those days. And oh, it's cheap as that, don't <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> so, with, it's with a very, testicle to that one. <laughs> with, with very little money, it David was very Coulter hard to pay the that chief back. executive there, probably creaming <laughs> off the top. But somebody crashed it uh, for me on the street. I had no money to put it back together. And a friend of mine said he'd put it back together if, for me for zero if I did a race on it. So I thought that sounded like a pretty good deal. I did a race on it. I finished second next to the Australian champion, never raced a road bike before. So, and then all of a sudden, sort of, um, I come in and he goes, what are you interested in doing? You know, if, um, and I said, well, if you give me a hobby, I'll get into it. So we organized a bike through Suzuki, uh, a production bike. And then pretty much a couple of years later, I'm sitting here in Monaco riding a 500. So it was a pretty quick um, learning curve. I'd never ridden a 250 uh, Grand Prix bike or a one, two, five. Straight into five <clears throat> In 87, I was on a 250cc street bike. <laughs> yeah. In 88, I was, I was riding for the factory Yamaha in Japan and Australia. And then I had all the, um, the, the Japanese, I had Suzuki, Yamaha and Honda wanting to sign me. So for 89, so I thought I was pretty hot stuff. <laughs> yeah, well, clearly. <laughs> but then I started uh, belting myself up on a, on a 500 bike because it was the first thing that I jumped on that I actually was difficult to ride. And um, was like, shit, have I got myself in a little bit of deep water here? Or <laughs> yeah. So it was either learn how to swim or I was, I was going to go back with, to Australia with my tail between my legs. And Not many legs at that stage. They were nearly all broken. I, I, I had both of them and they, they were okay at that time. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, it was a sink or swim moment and I just decided to knuckle down and, and away I went. And as you say, with Honda supported me and um, I soon got on top of my teammate and then they sort of backed me all the way. Was that Wayne Gardner? That was Wayne Gardner, that era was so special as far as I was concerned. So Wayne Gardner was a bit of a hero. And remember that uh, Paul Jordan was here and Paul was one of Wayne Gardner's mechanics, if you remember doing that show. Um, and there's another, uh, Stoner, Casey Stoner. Is Stoner, he up there as well? Stoney, Stoner came after uh, when I retired, sure. essentially. Yeah, yeah. And Barry Sheen, a, uh, Barry Sheen actually identified the kid. And then um, myself and another Australian helped put him in with Dorna. And then uh, with Danny Perosa in, in Spain and then into the World Championship and then, well done and then the rest of it's... Uh, so it was actually during my time that uh, Barry Sheen I was very friendly with and I think Barry was the first person to introduce me to you and, um, and that's a long time ago. And then funny Crokey came along and we'll talk about Crokey because he is one of the most adorable men that I've ever met in my life. Thankfully, he's older than me. And for the, <laughs> avoidance, <laughs> for the avoidance of things, can we tell the people who Crokey is? Because he's I a think sports we have person. to. Well, first of all, Crokey was an outstanding uh, Bathurst racer. He was uh, in all that big saloon stuff in Australia, New Zealand, but he actually won the Sydney to Hobart offshore uh, yacht race. He is an unbelievable yacht master and makes it worse, he lost his speech. Um, he had cancer at a very early age, wasn't that what happened the, to him? That's right, of his throat, yes. And can I tell that story that I wanted a little about you, you, you could tell a story or you could ask make a question as well. Because no, he, I want him to tell me. All right, on you Because go we're in Melbourne. And um, Crokey is there. We're at the Grand Prix. I'm thinking about going home that night on the flight. And uh, Mick says, oh, forget that. He said, we'll 
I got the plane here. We'll go up to uh, Brisbane. We'll go up to the Gold Coast. Stay with me, and we'll bring Crokey, and we'll go on to the Bay go of... swimming. And we go to the... <laughs> <laughs> virtually did, because we went on to his boat in the Bay of Islands in, yeah. uh, in New Zealand. That's right. And I've never seen sharks in my life so rampant. Every time we, you had a, a, a fish almost caught and into the boat, the shark would just take the line, every single part of it. It was just amazing. So that's how I first got to know you. Yeah, no, absolutely. But um, do you remember first meeting Eddie? I, I do. I remember Eddie was always very a friendly chap, as he still is now. <laughs> Back when I was competing, you were with Honda, and, yeah, and you'd be floating around the the bay here on your boat or whatever, or be here for Monaco Grand Prix. And um, you know, we've remained friends since then. But over the past few years, we've certainly got to know each other a lot better. So I guess your links, because I do want to go a little bit back onto your journey. First of all, before we link two wheels with four, because your son Jack, he's part of the Alpine driver program. He's a test and reserve driver or simulator driver, whatever the official title is. There, he's an F two. So you, you you've you've done your own racing career. And then you've got, you've got a son and a daughter, but the son's gone into four wheels, which I assume was encouraged by either you or his mum rather than getting into two wheels. And he's on the cusp of being a full-time Grand Prix driver in that he's been out testing Formula One and everything. So it, it, was it almost inevitable that having had your career, that if you had a little lad, that he would end up being a racer? Well, I think it is with all, all kids, aren't they? They see what the parents have done. And both of my kids, well, my daughter was born the, the, my last year of competition. Actually, I was in the hospital, I think, when she was born. <laughs> but um, but so they never see me compete. But um, Yeah, in but the they, hospital recovering from an injury rather right. than being there watching that's the right. bike. <laughs> I was there as well for that. Uh, <laughs> as you say, I know the mother is. <laughs> but, uh, but look... Um, I think it's inevitable a little bit. He Thankfully, in a way, he wasn't good at the time, but he broke his leg when he was around five years old on a dirt bike. He got hit by a buddy. And that sort of made him a little shy just at home of, of bikes. And he loved his surfing, his rugby, and and, um, and we were fortunate enough to have a go-kart track and still have it home. And um, But his buddies... <laughs> in, in front of the garden, guys, just in front of the boat on the plane. So, it looks really cool. He, may, he hasn't done bad out of all this, guys. Don't feel but bad. He was a five-time champion, so you know some financial reward came through that I've journey. I've been to see the go-kart track. But, yeah, to fast forward on that, he got into go-karting. I kept him out of it for a while because I knew once, you know, your, your boy's in, in karting now, once they, get a, once they get the bug, it's hard to not take them somewhere. I knew I'd be back at the racetrack every weekend. He won a few titles in Australia and I silly enough agreed to him that he said if he won another Australian title, could I take him to Europe? And I said, yeah, and I thought he wouldn't because he's stepping up uh, another class and he won, so here we are. <laughs> back in Monaco. Back in Monaco and, and as you say, he's done extremely well. He works at it and that's the main thing, so I'll support him while, while, he, while he keeps pushing himself. Yeah, well, pushing is something you had to do uh, during your own career. And when I was still racing in Formula One and, and you were still competing, we used to do some training together. And your physical resilience is something that I find remarkable. And anyone who's listening to this who knows you will know that, you know, once you put your mind to something, there, there's, you're, you know, very difficult to beat someone that won't stay down. And you had to overcome some incredible difficulties either side of your your five titles. Your and and you can take us through the the journey. But just for our listeners, there was a point where they wanted to amputate your leg after one particular accident, 
and they actually fused them together to get the blood flow between the two. And and so there's an image, I think, in one of uh, your book or a, a book that someone's done you that shows you there with your legs strapped together. So He's done, he's done his prep here, yeah. hasn't he? Uh, done... <laughs> incredible. So much respect for how you were able to overcome the injuries you sustained because you were either brilliantly fast or brilliantly high in the air about to make impact with the ground. <laughs> well, thankfully, I didn't crash often, but when I did... <laughs> I did it properly. <laughs> I did it properly. But, um, but yeah, I was fort- unfortunate that uh, I... I I chose the wrong surgeon to do a quick fix to get myself. There was two weekends off. I was leading the world championship. I'd almost won it the year before. I'm leading by a long way. Wayne Rainey had just gone home. And then I'd, I'd crashed for whatever reason. The bike landed on top of me. I broke my leg by spiralling out from underneath it because it was sliding up the road on top of me. Normally when you'd crash, you'd either hit the grass and you'd you'd separate. But because I'd, I'd hit a bit of fluid... I'm up the road, the thing's on top of me, it's starting to get a little bit warm, the friction. <laughs> so I spun out and everything spun except for my leg. When I went to stand up, I could feel the bones grind. I went, this isn't good, you know, get me over here. But basically there was two weekends off and I figured if I just, if Fused. the doctors was, were able to fuse it back together, you know, I'm not going to be that strong, but I'll be able to compete. Um, and Dr. Costa ended up saving my leg he just said, look, it's a spiral fracture. I can't, uh, I can't operate here back in those days. It was all Italy, Holland. It was all different, uh, different jurisdictions for medical, and I'm not sure whether they are today or not, but uh, with the EU. But long and short, um, I just said, let's go and do it, you know, this tonight in, in Holland. And um, I since learned if you were in a car accident out the front of the racetrack, they wouldn't send you to the hospital that I went to. They'd take you to a trauma hospital either in Holland and uh, in Assen or in, in Groningen. So, so I learned the hard way and long and short, 24 hours later, the, the, that surgeon wanted to amputate my leg because I had a, what they call a compartment syndrome, which he should have picked up on straight away. But thankfully, Dr. Cox had come and got me and took me away and saved the leg. But um, the reason... Sewed the legs together because otherwise a lot of it had turned necrotic. So gangrene had set in. I had, uh, you know, dug it out with a spoon essentially. You could sort of see the, you know, I didn't think that was good. I thought, <laughs> I thought trying, so to, good. trying to win the championship with a hole in my leg, like a big hole. I thought this was, uh, this is interesting. Now, what are we going to put here? Put here? But um, he gave me a few options. He said, look, we can take the rest of the year out and you can take a free flap from your backside or your back somewhere and, and put it on there. And I said, well, that's what's option two. He said, it's fairly barbaric. We haven't done it for a long while, but sew the legs together and you normally bolt the legs together as well. Well, that wasn't an option either because now I've got Swiss cheese for legs and that's not great when you're racing bikes. So, so I opted for that and we used the blood supply or he used my blood supply from the left leg to feed the right leg and then just scotch cast, so I plaster cast them together with windows so you could clean it and then, and then some other areas we just took some. So I took the skin also from one leg onto, to patch up that hole and took some, just got the cheese grater and, and sliced off a little bit and patched up some areas where it couldn't close up. So, um, so the legs look a lot worse than they actually could could have, um, should have been, but uh, but at the end of the day, they were functional, except I lost the, the use of my right ankle. So, but that was better than losing the knee from, losing the leg from the knee down. So he did a great job. A lot of people sort of blamed him, but it was myself who pushed myself. I was back on the bike, I think, uh, around seven weeks later. Unbelievable. Look, um, it's absolutely, you know, 
for me to say nothing all of that time is remarkable. So honestly, <laughs> I was trying not you know, to I've vomit. Heard a, I've heard the story so many times, but Mick, you cannot imagine. And that's what David was talking about, that resilience, that hardcore, that Aussie grit that's inside you. Um, it's an inspiration to everyone. And I, and I think he must be a little bit Scottish as well. He can't just be Irish. He's Irish. Will you get a grip? What I want to know, and I'm sure most of the listeners and anyone who's ever ridden a bike, David, when all this was going on with us, he moved the brakes from, so there was no braking. You moved it to the other side and you used your finger. Tell us about that. What, how did you operate the brakes on the bike in the, in the World Championship? Many, many of the guys now still operate like that because you see that with the legs flying off going into turns, so it's a bit hard to use a rear brake when your legs floating in the air somewhere. But anybody who's ridden a motorcycle would, would um, your right foot generally operates a rear brake and you get the front brake on, on the right finger. But... Um, Back in those days, the the traction control was the clutch, so you couldn't use it as a uh, as an index finger brake, and you couldn't. It's a bit hard to operate when the thing's trying to light up at two hundred and ten kilometres an hour. Which one am I using? Yeah. The the traction control or the brake? The brake's not <laughs> going to work. So I had, I adopted a thumb. I'm actually I tried an in, a, a little uh, brake for the the index finger. But I couldn't actually operate it. So during the race, I'm sort of going through this race without a rear brake. They wouldn't allow you to do that these days. Unbelievable. <laughs> but um, but I'm going. How hard am I actually hanging onto this bike? You know, and you actually you're not hanging onto it other than for braking and acceleration. But a lot of it's through your through your for your your hip flexors and your and your your feet. And you just steering the thing with your you know to, to go left, you actually push your left arm forward almost, and it's just hanging on. So I recognised then I could do like a jet ski um, thumb sort of break. So I'd, I'd, Honda thankfully adopted that uh, for me, made one um, themselves, uh, and the following race I was back on the podium. So so it was uh, amazing. And but you won the championship that year. I didn't win the championship that year because I only did. I was only doing. Um, I was only doing singular year contracts at that point in time. So everyone was trying to take my position. So I rode enough to. Um, I rode enough to get another contract. So long and short, there was only two races left for, for 92 by the time I come back. So 93, we did all that. I, I did enough. I think I finished fourth in the championship after crashing too often. And then I got my leg fixed and then I went on to win five in a row. It's fantastic. That is, that is remarkable. I mean, it's an unbelievable story, yeah. isn't it? So we, we mentioned before you came in the studio that um, – Michael Schumacher, who seven-time world champion, um, had uh, you know you you were big buddies. You'd hang out with each other, and and he named his son Mick after after yourself. So, and we also know that when Michael retired, he got into doing a bit of riding. He wasn't quite as good at that as he was at driving, unfortunately for me. But uh, it, where where did that that relationship build out of? And do you think he was already fascinated with two wheels? As a, as a hobby, and that's where you two guys came together. And he was pretty single-minded and physically a, a, a great specimen as well. He, he was living beside me in Fonvier, down, down where, where, where we all were. And he was with Benetton, his first championship, and I Honda had Benetton as a, as a team sponsor as well. So, so we met through a, a little bit of that, and then um, by living next door to each other, we'd start training a little, and then we'd start talking about, because we're in a different discipline, but with the same mindset almost, we could share a few things about how we went about racing. We used to push each other quite a bit with training, you know, so 
we'd go cycling. He'd beat me one day, I'd beat him the next. So we knew it would be on for the following time. You know, you and I used to do a bit of cycling as well. Uh, but but then he got into Harley Davisons, which you know, was like, tractors. <laughs> exactly. So I don't know what, what he was thinking, but he finally got onto sort of sports bikes, and uh, and he was actually very quick. But it was all about the braking, like in cars, which is just so took a little bit of sort of education for him to get it right. And um, but he loved it. He sort of got his own team, but. But he did retire from from the from the Formula One, and then he started to take it a little bit too seriously. And I remember sitting on the back of a friend's boat in the in the reef at one point, and he'd broken his neck. And I'm like, "Friggin' Michael, you're 40 years old. You don't learn how to race a motorcycle at 40 years old. And you know, with a car, you know, you can have a big shunt, but every it hurts. Yeah, every time you fall off a bike, you're on your backside, you know, you're, and you're licking your wounds, whereas a small one in a car, you just put it back in first gear and away you go, you know. But a um, big one on both or a big one on both. But So I think that was when he sort of changed his mindset and, and yeah, I could actually see it when he was going to come back. I actually said to my wife that I reckon he's missing sport and within uh, within a few months he'd signed to come back in Formula One. Yeah. Well, actually, sorry, did you have something there? Because I, I wanted to ask... Um, well, we often talk about it, and, and but obviously keep going through the racing side because I, I want to come to a business side eventually because yeah. I have the application. We, we've seen it so many times that... The discipline of motor racing, whether it be two wheels, four wheels, whatever many wheels, we're always impressed about certain people who are great sports people in our in our sport and, and can make the transition into being absolutely dynamic uh, in business. And um, I think I'm not giving any um, games away here, but McDoan probably has, if not one of the world's most leading um plane uh, businesses, uh, about second-hand sales, leasing planes, and just tell me, where did that all come from? It, um, and how big is it? Yeah, and what's the name of it, actually? <laughs> you know, we've got a huge following. You, you know, someone's going to want an yeah, aircraft. Well, and, so. and, and I've only mentioned this because I know that I've got some free hours coming my way. Is that <laughs> Not a chance. Remember, he's part <laughs> Irish. <laughs> but uh, the company's called Jetcraft. The head office is in London, in fact, but I'm one of four partners in it, so it's not just my company. So I don't wag the dog, that's for sure. So, but, um, <laughs> I don't believe that. Go on. But it's, a, but it's a large company. We do on average around 100 aircraft sales annually. And how did I get into that? Back like us more when we were competing, getting around, there was a lot more testing and doing commitments here, commitments there. It was difficult to get around Europe 20, 30 years ago, more so than it is today. <clears throat> I ended up buying an aircraft. And when I, when I stopped competing, I figured... Uh, I didn't want to be without the aircraft, but I didn't really need it. So how do, how do I make it sort of work for myself? And uh, so I started with chartering and then a few other little FBO type of products and fuels and so on in Australia. And then people had asked me about purchasing an aircraft and can I help them and whatever else. And, and, and eventually I ended up becoming a shareholder in, in, the, uh, in the Jetcraft group. And, um, and that's about it. I still have the other businesses in Australia, which is Charter, which is Global Jet International, and the Platinum Business Aviation Centres, which uh, we've been, been to before. And manage, um, we now manage 10 aircraft in Australia, which doesn't sound much on a, on a, on a large um, uh, scale, but we're the largest manager of corporate aircraft in the country as well. Yeah, and you are like a, another Aussie buddy of ours, Mark Weber. You're you're a, a pilot. You're a helicopter pilot. So, uh, a little bit like why make it simple by going for fixed wing when you can make it complicated <laughs> by going for something hanging below 
you know, a couple of rotors. Well, it's a bit like a bike, I guess. You know? <laughs> it's <laughs> so uh, a plane's a bit like a car. You know, you let go of the wheel, it'll continue to go. The helicopter won't. And uh, But it's the ultimate off-road vehicle as well. If you want to land there, you land there. If you want to stop over there on the beach or you like something you've just seen, perhaps do a loop and get back down on the ground and have a look. Can you imagine? <laughs> Could that be? Actually, <laughs> I nice, think uh, you restaurant. mentioned about, uh, yeah, about this little last, which in a way was a little bit sad. And perhaps it's a question that I... We piled into your plane and went off to Austria. We went to Vienna for the very sad occasion, the, the loss of Nicky Lauder, who was the standout person for me in those early days. Who I would not have been in a team or created a team or had anything to do. So he was a huge inspiration for me. And the question to you, there must have been somebody who you saw. Um, who was your inspiration? In the road racing side of things, I didn't really have much exposure to it to be honest in Australia. Wayne Gardner in 87, he won the championship in 87 and as I say I'd really only just started to ride the bikes back then anyway and Barry Sheen had just moved to the country and he was, uh, so it sort of coincided with me getting a contract with uh, with Yamaha. Barry was very influential as you know. We know. <laughs> in, in many areas. With but, Alan Jones and you, but, that was my nightmare with you guys. But, Jesus, I couldn't cope with that at all. But, but Barry helped and supported me a lot in those early years and then I had some good other people around me. But, I mean, as far as the road racing, he was probably somebody I looked up to and then another guy, Eddie Lawson, who ended up being my teammate because in, in 88 um, he won the championship for, for Yamaha on a 500cc I was with um, Marlboro and Yamaha in superbikes and a little bit of Japanese stuff. And he also supported me um, a little bit when I come through. I, I signed for Honda for 89 and he signed for Honda for 89 and won the championship because, you know, Wayne Gardner was, was complaining that the only reason he'd won, being Eddie, was that his bike was no good and, and he, if he was on a Yamaha, he would have won. Sounds so. like David Coulter here. <laughs> so, so Eddie, Same stuff. He Eddie, won every race. Eddie. Did you know that? He won every race. <laughs> I <laughs> could have won every they, race. He <laughs> won every race and they but, took it away from But it was a classic. But, I mean, like this is how disciplined that guy was. He just went, you know, I'm just going to just jump on his bike. So Honda actually built, a, built him a bike, separate, a complete factory little outfit, and he won the championship and Wayne, admittedly Wayne broke his leg, but I mean under the pressure as well. So, and then he went and he went following that year he was Honda, the next year he went back to Yamaha. So, but, um, but so he helped me, Barry Sheen helped me. Beyond that, it was all just dirt bikes. So uh, racing, growing up racing dirt bikes and motocross. And, and so I was, all, I was more inspired by those guys. And then, as I say, because I couldn't afford to fix my, my little road bike I'd bought, my, my whole sort of mindset of which way i'd like riding bikes changed who who would you say then of that generation were your equivalent who who was like you know you had such a run of success was it just not like that in bikes and prior to you coming along that anyone sort of came in and had prolonged success they had a championship here and a championship there um, was it Agostini or well, something? Well, Agostini had a had a great run. He did uh, what seven in a row, I think, and then and then another one. Valentino Rossi, who sort of everyone would know, he he did five in a row, and then a, a couple of others after that as well. Over a twenty year period, I, I did ten. I'm not sure Agostini must have done a number, yeah. but I mean they also raced a lot of different categories back then. So Agostini's got fifteen world titles. He was racing. 250, 350, 500 all on the same day. It's unbelievable, actually, <laughs> but, isn't it? Uh, 
But, you know, there's Wayne Rainey who was three times world champion. He beat me in 91 and then 92 after I, I nearly lost my leg. But then, unfortunately, he broke his back in 93. Kevin Schwantz was just absolutely nuts. So <laughs> had he just uh, All the way from Texas, man. <laughs> yeah. He had an unusual but, riding style, didn't he? He was like very operator, well, straight back. Just, to, well, he's just he was a very lanky. funny guy. Yeah. <laughs> I loved him. But, I mean, he's just he was mad. And he, he won a championship by just slowing off. He just slowed off like two tenths a lap. He'd, he would have won many, you know. So, But the guy was just what he could get away with on the bike. You go, how is he getting away with that? Oh, he's not. but uh but he was extremely fast but but it's it you know there's period in times where there's a lot of uh where guys are dominating and then we've seen with marquez as well and um you know honda have seemed to have lost their way in the bikes a little bit at the moment ducati are on fire but uh i think it's just it's a bit like verstappen at the moment he's the man he's got the machine the, the the car i think is being developed around him so it's uh he's just dominating and i think that was a Similar things with me, as I said earlier, I came in, I started beating Wayne fairly quickly and Honda then started to take my lead on development and, and likewise uh, Michelin did as well. So so it was pretty good to be in, a, in that position where everything's getting designed around your thoughts. Mick, uh, you, you talked about your somewhat Irish heritage, and of course I'm Irish, and he's a Celt the other side of it. And comes back he's to a the Celt, way we all. By the way, if anyone uh, <laughs> couldn't hear his pronunciation. <laughs> um, so I was brought up with things like the Northwest and um, Dundrod and, and Scaries and stuff like that. And last year I went back to present a couple of trophies and to play in the band at the Isle of Man, um, and. That was the scariest I've ever seen. I've sidecars gone through Bray Hill. I have never in my entire life felt as weak as I've seen that because the speeds are just ridiculous, okay? They have a lot of fatalities there, and, of course, there's always a balance and a question as to what happens. You went there. You've seen it. What is it that drives so many people to the Isle of Man, and why is it that you avoided it? (laughs) I think uh, just everything you explained. I, I'm not sure whether it was Agostini or Sheen who forced the world championship away from uh, Isle of Man was on the on the on, on the F-I-M. calendar. Yeah. F- but really today, you know, credit to those guys. They've you know, but it's almost Russian roulette. And you know, 135 mile an hour laps. On it's it's insane. Bus. It's insane. And they're. And no disrespect to the riders, they're amazing riders, but they're almost amateur in, in compared to the to the the likes of a you know a Banyaya or a Marquez or whoever's sort of leading in the world championship, or even your man Jonathan Ray, yeah. you know, in the world superbike. So you know you wouldn't see those guys go there. Well, because the, the guy the I went to see was Michael Dunlop, and yeah. he's just won what twenty three TTs or twenty five. He's equal now to his uncle, and of course. His uncle is dead, his brother is dead, his father is dead, and they all died in the eye. It seems to be, I don't know what it is. Explain it to me. I remember, you know, you asked about um, idols and whatever. When when you started to get into it, I started to get into the racing, road racing side of things. Joey Dunlop, Isle of Man was still a big thing back then. Joey was, you know, a Honda. And I remember going to the first race I did with Yamaha in late 87 up in Japan at, in, in Sugo, when, and it was a, a round of the, the TTF1, it was called, called it back then, 
And I ended up lapping. I finished third. I lapped Joey Dunlop. And I'm like, Jesus, you know, <laughs> he's a world TTF1 champion. And, uh, and that's when I realized they ride at a different level, you know, back then. I think today they'd probably take more risks than even Joey did back then. But Joey was just calculated and he'd just ride and be smooth and fast. Whereas some of these guys today, and he's, you know, he's, he's, his nephew Michael, like yeah. credit to him, but, but they're but he's short such a track. Shy guy. Yeah. Like but, what you say is they're almost amateurs. But I think Michael has now been properly paid. But when I did this interview with him, I couldn't, I could hardly get the words out of him because he was kind of, you know, I'm, I'm not worthy kind of a thing. And you put a, see him on a bike in the leathers, and my God, it's like it transformed. He's a different character. But you must have been a bit like that. Shy or? No. <laughs> I would never describe you as being shy. But, uh, <laughs> no, but, you, but look, I think we all are. Once you, once you put your, your helmet on as a race car driver or you, when you're running a team, once you're in your office, you, you, you want to perform. And, uh, and it's no different. Um, you know, there's a different code of ethics when you're out racing than there is when you're off the, out of that office. So it's just normal, normal life. So here, here's a question to you. And, you know, EJ and I uh, often reminisce off air about how the sport's evolving. You know, you're, you're closely aligned to Formula One now because of, as we mentioned, your son Jack uh, being with, with Alpine. Motor, ra motor racing, in, in terms of car racing, has, has been sanitized and, and the tracks are safer and there's so many devices there, which as a father, you, you're obviously going to be very happy about. But where, where do you think we sit in terms of bikes? They've got airbags on the leathers, and I'm sure the leathers are a bit better, but it's still a pretty raw place to live. And as you've just both explained with, with uh, TT-type racing, there is nowhere to hide. You know, you, you, there's trees and there's you know, fence posts and all sorts of things. Do, do we think that that gladiatorial element, that, my God, I can't believe they're doing it, is necessary to a certain degree in motor racing, or do we just accept it can be a lot safer in car racing because of the nature of the, the four wheels around you and things like that? Where, where's your mind at on that? Yeah, I, I'm not a big fan and never have been of the things like the Isle of Man because of the exposure it gets. So for our sport, there's not too many people who want to throw advertising at a sport where people have, have been, there's fatalities, you know, and, and it's pretty... And lots of them. And lots of them. And, um, you know, that that's an extreme... Isle of Man, but it paints a picture of the whole sport in a way. Um, MotoGP at the moment is going through a bit of a transition with all these electronic aids and ride height devices and whatever. There's a lot of people crashing, a lot of people getting hurt. So I think that's in a very sort of delicate place at the moment. But you're right, the, the runoffs, like the things that we used to get away with, we used to think compared to coming to places like where you probably raced when you were young, but especially in Australia, and then you get to these racetracks in Europe and go, wow. And now today, <laughs> you almost need binoculars in the grandstand to see anything. But they're all, they're talking about making runoff even further. So I think, it, it, as you say, as a parent, it's a good thing to keep people safe. But motorsport is inherently dangerous. We don't want to see anybody injured. If we can minimize the, the risks, then let's try and minimize it. But I think. We're now getting we're now getting a little bit carried away with you can't even race you got to get a penalty you got to, and that's the same in bikes as well like there's there needs to be somebody responsible the whole time instead of it just being a race like you know you've been I remember some things at Spa with you and and somebody else and, you know uh, imagine, <laughs> imagine if that happened today you know there'd be a full inquest into it we just heard um, recently George Russell coming out and saying that he. 
he was skeptical, not, not totally happy about four of his teammates that he races against in terms of um, uh, racing hard against. In your day, who was there somebody that you always tried to avoid or you just <laughs> believed in? You tried to avoid them all? Yeah, tried to avoid them all and just to get away from them. But no, there were certainly some people there, like Luca Catalora would run you off the track, you know. It was, it was, there was a few guys like that would just push you into the, the – and there wasn't all the asphalt runoffs back then. It was, it was grass and then into the jungle in some places, you know, so <laughs> – and seriously. But um, in Malaysia there, I remember in a test there, somebody crashed their bikes and the, the, the marshals wouldn't go and get it. They were too worried to go into the jungle to go and get the bike. Because of the snakes. <laughs> but, I mean, but there was a few, I'm sure, in cars as well. There's just guys who would rather take you out than let you pass. And um, so you had to really be a little bit strategic of how you got past them and make sure it's a clean and decisive pass. But, um, you know, Luca was always fun to race with and he was amazingly quick. But when he wasn't, you know, if try and if you do a half move on him, it's a half move and you're going to take a few laps to get back past him again. But there was a couple of other guys like that as well. But, but Luca, because he was always up there or thereabouts, it was, it was one that you always had to worry about. Nice to hear. Great it story. is indeed. Well, Big look, insight. Mick, conscious of your time, really appreciate you coming in to join us. Um, and... Uh, I've I've not uh, heard EJ be so silent for so long as when you were. I don't were, think I was silent at all. Don't know, but during oh. the parts where he was talking no, about he, the I, injuries, I, 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 you I, were silent. You were respectful. Everything you're not when we're just here together. <laughs> he knows how much I absolutely adore him no, for what absolutely. he has achieved. I mean, we've been a long time. So when I need a new Honda scooter, yeah. I ring. <laughs> There's I ring always up, an angle. I ring up Mick. I say, Mick, why don't we order two? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, look, I, I'll leave it to the Irishman to try and blag some cheap scooters. No, we've already, already, had them, already done that. You've already done that. <laughs> we've had them, haven't we? Yeah, okay. Yeah. Well, Mick, thank you very much for coming in and sharing a little bit of your stories. I feel that uh, this, this is something that we should revisit maybe later on the season if you're okay to come in and join us again and we can track uh, the progress of Jack in Formula 2 as well right EJ before we sign off uh, we've got one important announcement to make haven't we what's coming up next week well um, actually through the help and we're talking about Silverstone what they've been doing and and, and how much Silverstone was so important to us all growing up in, in motor racing and yet again they've come up trumps they have a new chairman there uh, Peter Digby, who's uh, inspired a lot of people to do different things, and we've got them, convinced them. On the Saturday evening, they've got the Black Eyed Peas as the main stage, and we're going to support, we, when I say that, I'm saying um, Formula for Success is going to have some guests and some friends, and you and I have a, a finger out of the um, middle of the main stage, and we're going to have a couple of little settees there, and you and I hopefully will be able to entertain the masses of Silverstone, and hopefully they come at 6.30 on a Saturday evening before they get rock and roll with the Black Eyed Peas. They can have a listen to DC and EJ and some of their guests. And can you do a little warm-up on the spoons ahead of the Black Eyed Peas coming on? I'm not sure that'd be very clever, and I don't think the Black Eyed Peas would appreciate my kind of spoon playing, but never know. You never know. I could ask. Well, here's to Silverstone. And uh, hopefully as many of the listeners that we have tuning in here can, as you say, uh, join us on the main stage at 6.30 at Silverstone. Well, look, that's all we have time for. So from me, David Colthard, and from you, the Uh, Mad Irishman, 
And from well, our guests. Two mad Irishmen. No, here. Mick do it. I was coming to Mick. No, I was he sounds say, Australian, but deep down, he's a paddy. Well, look, from the mad Irishman opposite me and from the legend that is Mick doing sitting beside me, this was Formula for Success. Absolutely. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com work. Shopify.com work.